What'd you have for breakfast, Sharice? Um, this is sad. I don't want to tell you what I had for breakfast. I had a hash brown. That's it? Yeah. A single hash brown. So I'm trying to eat fewer uh, carbs. Yeah. Not for a weight loss reason, but just like to see if it makes me feel more. Um, it's not that I think I'm allergic to gluten. I just want to know if cutting out like bread and pasta means I will be more energetic. Like refined. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but then I was like, I, I was going, I was just going to get the coffee. And then I was like investigating the McDonald's menu and there are. The pricing sucked in. Oh like, my God. This is the second week in a row. We're plugging no, McDonald's. There's like, no, we don't have to put this in. There's like no non-carb options at McDonald's besides the hash brown. I almost bought a sausage egg McMuffin and like was going to not eat the muffin uh, bit. We can talk I think about it's something just else. Better you don't eat anything. Just, just nothing. Just go on the old intermittent fasting. But like, it's easier for me to miss a meal like in the middle of the day than it would be for me to miss breakfast. Well, breakfast. Got it. I've had hash brown and coffee. Don't think it really counts. Okay, well, that is not the start that I expected. Yeah, <laughs> man, shaking my head. Two straight weeks of McDonald's, McDonald's plugs. Anyways. How are things with I you? just got back from Shanghai. How was that? Know. Very interesting. I was at a trade show for the first time. And I think the interesting part was actually to- What kind of trade show was it? In your words. It's a streetwear trade show. There were um, big exhibitors like Nike and Converse, but then also smaller exhibitors um, like Pleasures was there. Ozbat, um, Vlone. Anyway, the the interesting part for me was not like the exhibitors, like the booths part, but seeing the kind of people who attend these and, sort of trade shows, and then also especially because like I was in China and I don't go into China very much. What what were the attendees like? What did you think they'd be like, and what was the reality? I think I was m- surprised at how into the culture these people were. I don't, I think my expectations were actually for it to be not as well attended as it was. And also for people to be a more random selection, but just judging by like the way people were dressed and lining up for booths and talking to each other. Like these are people who are really interested in the culture. Yeah. Like very immersed. But are they interested? Spending money on these brands. In the creative aspect? Are they interested in the fact they could, consume. I mean, I can't, I don't know because you I didn't really talk shame. to any of them. Yeah. My Chinese is not great, but I also didn't go out of my way to try to talk to any of the yeah. attendees on that level. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure they're both. Like, I'm sure there's a large portion of people who are there just to consume. There's a portion of people there just like for flossing, like showing yeah, off their yeah, fit. Of course. Um, but I do hope that there is like also a select group that are there because they're, you know, interested in creators like yeah. around the world and this is an opportunity that maybe they don't get a lot of yeah i mean everything's so fresh there right everyone's waiting for opportunities to be part of something they're at least mildly interested in right yeah at the very very minimal tip yeah yeah actually this kind of ties into a piece of news you've been talking about one thing obviously the big news out of i guess fashion is Supreme's alleged valuation at $1 billion. I think it's really interesting because 
to be honest, to be a streetwear slash t-shirt company to attain that level of success without opening a major market or a major region. You know, I mean, Japan is Japan, but like, man, no China, no South Korea, no Southeast Asia. That's like crazy. Yeah. Well, not officially, but yeah. obviously but, it, it's spread globally yeah, but, without them. But I, this this opened up an interesting series of topics where Kazim on the Making Slack community asked a question for Thursday. I can't say with 100% certainty that it pertains to Supreme, but it just seemed like I'm, I'm making a logical conclusion. But he is asking, oh, how do brands maintain commerciality and coolness? And how do they balance the yeah, two Yeah, how do things? they balance the two? And mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting because one thing I've started to realize more and more is what's perceived to be cool is very much driven by regional context. Like what the Western world deems to be cool is very much different than what the Eastern world deems is cool. And mainstream things tend to be deemed a lot cooler in Asia than they do in the Western world. So by virtue of everyone being onto something, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's like almost a sense of validation. If it hasn't reached a sense of mainstream adoption, then it's almost not worth necessarily caring about. And I mean, it ties into a lot of things like celebrity culture is rampant, but I would say celebrity culture in Asia is arguably stronger than it is in the Western world. Just thinking about my recent experience in China and Supreme's influence there, I do think that it is still more cool in China because they haven't they haven't had the means to adopt it as early just because of like the economic situation in China, right? Like there is increasing amounts of you said this like disposable income of, yeah. with young people, which is why it's still cool because like their ability to acquire it is more new. Yeah. Right. Well, but, I think it, I think there's also an underlying factor that pertains to the to the notion of conspicuous consumption. I mean, I know you're just, you're generalizing in a way and you're aware of that, but um when I was in Shanghai, we also went to this really small event at this non-chain streetwear store mm-hmm. in in a pretty like low-key neighborhood, like not near Nike lab, like not near other big retailers. And it was for this new brand launch yeah. that was um, like just made a couple months ago. And there were people queuing up already for that. Like yeah. not like a big line, but there is a sector of youth in China that are really aware that, oh, the cool thing is actually the thing that's like unfound yet, like yeah. undiscovered. Yeah. I think it's generally a, a multi-phase approach. Like when, when you're just getting into something, naturally the biggest voices, the ones with the most visibility, capture attention first and foremost. And then as you start to become a little bit more accustomed, you you understand the nuances and then the community develops. I think that maybe is like the evolution that tips into your point. Yeah. Well, I was also in Shanghai, which is like probably the hub in China, right? Yeah, like they're yeah. going to be first. Yeah. Kudos to Supreme. I think they've done a lot of really interesting things. I had a pretty long reply in the Make and Slack um, channel thread. Yeah, so. you dragged me into the water. Yeah, pretty much. You didn't reply though. Not yet. That's fine. Not yet. It, this was like six hours ago. Give me some time. One, one last thing that I was really happy about in terms of, you know, being able to put it out there was this interview I did with Gary Warnett. Um, it was like an archival piece that I'd been sitting on. For my old personal site, eugenecan.com, rest in peace. I was doing that just on the side um, seven, eight years ago. And it was just something 
that allowed me to talk about things I wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. And for people unfamiliar with Gary, um, I don't think he's necessarily a household name, but if you're kind of in the know about street culture and one of the more illustrious writers, it's definitely Gary Warnett. He's just like someone that has a, a really strong grasp of all things that tie back to the culture. And he does it in a very authentic way. Um, unfortunately, he passed away a few weeks ago. I mean, the outpouring in itself, I think, was very indicative of of the impact he's had. Like, no one will ever have anything bad to say about this guy. Like, Gary is literally the man, like, super funny, always very, very upbeat, I'd say. And so humble. So very, very humble. And I think that it's it's something that when I was coming up in the industry as, like, someone I felt I needed to take tips from and model myself after because... The ability to have that unapologetic point of view is crazy strong. And it also allows you to differentiate yourself, especially nowadays. Like, I mean, I, there's another side convo I was having. It's like, who is like the up and coming Gary Warnett? And I mean, it's not, it's not that you need to replace the guy at all, but it's just like, who has the ability to impact culture and, and critical thought within this space? like Gary has. And I, I said this before, I really wish there was more material around Gary's own thoughts versus mm-hmm. him telling the story of... Other people. Yeah. For me, I'm also just really pleased that you dug up this email conversation, that you had it, that you felt like it was worth asking us, like, should this go up on the site? And just the fact that you and Gary had this really lengthy back and forth correspondence it's just this like Like, unexpected surprise that at this moment in time we could you know come back and give that to other people yeah i mean like that was like what seven eight years ago and honestly it still sticks with me like that's how impactful it was and i think that's like tough because it was it's also representative of a point in time like how are you going to get someone to reply to an email like that these days impossible that's kind of what i was thinking because you know, like now it's, it's very much a time gonna and place do? We're going to have to like screen cap WhatsApp conversations in the future. Yeah, it's way, way different. It's not the same. Yeah. Should yeah. we get started? Yeah, let's do it. So what do you want to talk about today? My topic is, should we consider how brands interact with our geotagged public spaces for things such as AR, augmented reality? And this question comes up because of a recent project. Yeah, this came up because of a recent project between Snapchat and Jeff Koons. Um, and what it was... What the project entailed was the ability to superimpose Kunz's iconic balloon dog artwork at specific geotag locations around the world. If you're not familiar with Jeff Kunz's balloon dog, it's this metallic structure, I guess. It's like... How would you describe it? It's really just a balloon animal. It's really big. Yeah. It's big. It's about like double a regular human size, like in height, and then maybe, I don't know, like five, six It's like a metallic... It's a metallic structure and it looks like a balloon dog. Yes, basically. it looks like a dog made out of a balloon and it's yeah. like a metallic gold or pink, et cetera. Do and you, he's done other similar sculptures. Do you know the story behind the, the exact balloon dog, you know, original? No. I, I don't either. Do you? No, I was wondering if you knew. I don't, but I've seen it in real, real life. life. Okay, so, so how does it work? Yeah, so this wor- this thing works by recognizing the location in which you're at and it allows you to superimpose this dog. So famous locations around the world, such as Central Park in New York City, provide you the opportunity to have this dog show up through Snapchat. So yeah. you need the app. You need the app. Yeah. So it's actually real. It sounds 
They make it sound really fancy, but the way it works is the same as face filters, essentially, but using the back-facing camera. So most famously, recently, the dancing hot dog guy yeah, is like yeah. exactly the same thing. It's not except that, crazy. that, like the tech is not crazy. Yeah. The only exceptional thing is that it's geospecific. Yeah. So I can't, like we can't pull it up here in the office. We can we're only, not at the right spot. Yeah, we yeah. can only see it if we're like in Central Park or at the Eiffel Tower. Some people have had an issue with this and they've gone and quote unquote vandalized the balloon dog and created their own version that has the balloon dog tagged up, um, hit up with with graffiti. And I don't know exactly how it works, but you can also make it appear at the geotag locations. So it's this guy named Sebastian Arazures. Might have totally mangled that last name. And he's part of this collective called CrossLab which also develops apps and AR experiences and they have their own AR app. So if you wanted to pull up this vandalized Coons dog, you would have to download their app. Oh, I see. And it, it, I assume it works the same way as the Snapchat lens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess to return to the, the original point, the original issue. So mm-hmm. Sebastian made this point. Should corporations be allowed to place whatever content they choose over our digital public space? Central Park belonged to the city of New York. Why should corporations get to geotag its GPS coordinates for free? We know they will make money renting GPS spots to brands and bombard us with advertisements. They should pay rent. We should choose to approve what can be geotagged to our public and private space. So I think I, when I first read that, I was like, oh, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. You know, I, I definitely can get behind that. But then as I started thinking about it a bit more, it came to mind that the reality is that AR experiences are app dependent. Even the fact you brought up that that Sebastian's own app is required to experience his vandalized balloon dog. That was a good point because if you don't use Snapchat, if you don't use that app, there's never going to be any sort of experience with that augmented reality sort of um, execution or campaign, right? And it's it's basically an invisible experience. It's like either you have it, like for me, I would never know. You know, if I'm walking around, it's not like it's in front of me. Right. I agree that if you were walking around and you weren't listening to this podcast or reading the news, you would never know that the Coons dog exists. But you might see Instagram photos of the dog or you might see people posing in like unexpected ways in these locations. So you still it would still affect your life. Like it's still possible to have interactions with that item. But I mean, another point I thought was interesting was that, so this is one of the comments I saw on, on the TechCrunch article was there isn't, so a point that was brought up by Mike Boland, chief analyst of artillery. I believe I'm saying that right. A-R-tillery. Um, so he said, basically he referenced that the digital world isn't one real world. So that means that it's not like one real world with limited real estate. Mm-hmm. When you're in an app, it's like, you know, there could be a hundred apps that all do AR and they're all individual worlds. Mm -hmm. So that makes it very difficult for you to generally claim any one of those. And I'm starting to think that that's probably the better way of looking at it. And I, I also wonder if there's a way to actually enforce this, you know what I mean? Like to your point about, yeah, I could share an image of the, the Coons balloon dog, but how is that any different than me adding a sticker to a photo? I agree as well with this commenter on 
the fact that there are many digital worlds and that there's not one digital world. But I was trying to get into the mind of this artist, Sebastian, and maybe he's just really forward thinking and he's thinking about a dystopic future ahead of us where we are somehow forced to participate in one digital world. Yeah. Like, I I know we're conjecturing about the future, but I was trying to think about it in a realistic sense. And I was thinking about what if in a couple of years, there's some aspect of AR that's really commonly used. Like for some reason, instead of Google searching on your phone, it's like Google AR searching. Do you know what I mean? Like it, you can opt in or out, but it's something that's much more commonly used. And then that being co-opted by companies would be more concerning, but there's still nothing we can do because it's a private company. Exactly. I think that's the exact point right there. As a private company, what can you really do? It's like no one's forcing you to use the app. And especially in a position like Snapchat, that's how they're going to make money. Yeah. Right? Getting branded partnerships like this. It's not, it's not you necessarily going and buying filters individually, which they used to do, right? It's like, how do I get a brand on board and charge them XYZ number of dollars? Which I I think does raise a good point. Like you're you're kind of monetizing someone else's space in a in a more in, innovative fashion. Actually, do you remember when Pokemon Go was really popular? Yeah. And Pokemon Go is also geospecific. Like yeah. there were stops at specific places and that affected the non-AR world in real ways, right? Like yeah, you'd those, have tons of people at parks. Yeah, those like, places yeah. were more heavily trafficked. Maybe certain cafes were more you know, sponsored. So there are potentials for link-ups, like how it could affect our world. But I don't know what that means for like regulation. I guess an issue that could arise is if you are inherently influencing or taxing a certain public space, like in the sense of uh, Pokemon Go, right? If you all of a sudden brought, you know, 100,000 people to Central Park, yeah, you've all, all of a sudden introduced a greater usage and everyone else's opportunity suffers because of that. Or it could be more intrusive in a way that we haven't seen yet. Like let's say for some reason there's an AR incentive to be at a roundabout or like at a major street crossing and that would cause real issues, right? With like yeah. actual traffic. Actually, honestly, as I think about this more, it's it, it, it raises some... Now I actually am starting to come around more to Sebastian's point because if if you're an artist, right? If, well, a big artist is a big artist, but as a small artist, the likelihood of you being in Central Park is virtually nil. Mm-hmm. But if you were to design your own experience, whether it's real or not, it almost doesn't matter anymore, right? Like mm-hmm. people consume things digitally. Like the offline experience is still important, but it's not the most critical thing. Mm-hmm. So what that means is, you know, I could see like in the eyes of a Jeff Koons, yeah, you know what, this guy's a, a multimillionaire, whatever, super successful artist, and he's getting this exposure for free by placing it in a in a highly trafficked, iconic place. But on this on the flip side, what if you're, let's say you, Sharice, did like, you know, a sculpture and you had the opportunity to do it. Yeah. You know, and all of a sudden, like you would never have the ability to have, you know, your piece shown in in whatever. Yeah. Like let's say, let's even use a museum, like let's say you illustrated something, you could go to the MoMA and like there's a special place where 
you could have your peace in the MoMA. Yeah. It's not reality per se. Yeah. I don't know. Like, it's, it's interesting. I actually don't know <laughs> if there's a clear-cut answer. I'm starting to like really come around to like the different ways this could Play manifest out. itself, right? Yeah. There's actually one thing that about the Jeff Koons Snapchat project that's really interesting to me in a positive way because large art installations aren't easy to make, aren't easy to get. Also, especially here in Hong Kong, like we don't get a lot of, I feel like we don't get a lot of good year round exhibitions or like traveling artists. And right now um, there's this fair going on called Freeze. Have you heard of this? F-R-I-E-Z-E. Yeah. Um, in London and New York. And I really miss attending art shows like that. So if you, if Freeze did some kind of AR app where you could have that experience in Hong Kong, like let's say it was still tied to a location, like you had to go to convention center. I would probably pay money for that to have that experience because I can't travel there to see it. And that was like a I know that like this is not Sebastian's point. Like his is actually the other way around. But I'm really interested in seeing more projects that are like this. Yeah. For that positive reason. On on the spectrum, it could be a lot worse because this is in fact art. Yeah. But it could be also a lot worse. It'd be, I don't know. It's like, it's weird because as a consumer, it's you're the one who puts value on it. If If let's say like, you know, there's, Rucker Park in New York, which is like a famous place to play basketball. If there is an AR of a massive new Nike shoe, like would I be, would I find that intrusive or would I be like, yo, that's really cool. This is like the size of a half court. It's, it's kind of, I don't know. It's like, I, I, at first I wanted to go in and be really dismissive, but now I'm kind of warming up to the idea of creating experiences and, and maybe warming up to the idea that, experiences, the best experiences, the best experiences aren't always physical experiences because there's physical limitations at hand. I think the main argument still is that there are many digital worlds and the opt in opt out is very clear for these digital worlds. Yeah. Whereas actual real life advertising, I can't even opt out. Yeah, it's there. Either you can look away, but that is... I was actually thinking about how if AR becomes increasingly adopted, like we're all wearing AR glasses sometime in the future, you could pay money for an AR application that blacked out real advertising. Yeah. And that would be Real world ad blocker. Yes. The general consensus between you and I is like there is no real conclusion right i think we're still trying to wrap our heads around it if there's any points that we missed i would love to hear other people's input or how they just generally feel about how ar could become an increasingly big part of their lives and whether they're okay with it whether they believe that hey you know what digital worlds are digital worlds i can easily opt in and out one more thing to tack on is just that this conversation is definitely ongoing and that's why we haven't got a solid answer right now because i'm sure there will be more and more examples that come up sounds good What do you have for us this week, Sharice? So I am here to talk about Dropbox doing a major visual redesign. 
for the first time in their 10-year history, and they have positioned it as an evolution of the Dropbox brand. So Dropbox, for its entire history, has been known for file syncing. It is a service for storing your files, and they really want to be more than that. As they say on the microsite where they announce this new design, they say, as our mission has evolved from keeping files in sync to helping keep teams in sync, we realize our brand needs to change too. Our new brand system shows that Dropbox isn't just a place to store your files. It's a living workspace that brings teams and ideas together. The look is expressive with vibrant colors, rich imagery, a versatile typeface, and playful illustrations. What are your initial thoughts before we dive into it? So, and, Hold uh, on. Are you a Dropbox user? I am a Dropbox user. Okay, let's start there. I am a Dropbox user and I've been a long time Dropbox user. And I think the first reason I started using it was because I'd been using Google Drive and I maxed out my storage. So that's really yeah. my main reason. I, I like Dropbox. For jumping over. I've always liked it, but when we moved over, like we had um, a friend at a different service just offer us unlimited seats pretty much. And we just, I mean, as a startup, you were just kind of like clawing yeah. at whatever you could get. Yeah. And I think that the current service we use, which is Box, I think it's it's set up in a way that's maybe a little bit more corporate friendly in terms of security, in terms of, I guess overall the layers of administration are a little bit more defined. So mm -hmm. like what, what responsibilities, what roles people can play, it's a lot easier to control. It's very team oriented. Yeah. Whereas I, Dropbox, I don't really think of as team oriented. The way I use Dropbox is actually just to share files with clients. Yeah. So like if I did a deck and they need to review it, I'll send them that Dropbox link instead yeah. of attaching a PDF because nobody attaches, you know, 25 yeah. megabytes of like box files prior, anymore. Box prior to the recent update was very archaic looking. I hated it. Yes. Like it just felt Visually, it didn't look great, but it worked. Generally it worked, yeah. Generally it worked as in like you could upload really big files and you could download really large sets of files. And that was kind of amazing. Yeah. And I didn't really have like upload, download disruptions. Yeah. But anyway, back to the, can I say Dropbox redesign? So I actually think I was slightly misled when I first heard about this redesign because I thought that it came with product announcements and it doesn't. It's purely a visual redesign that they're announcing. So it's a new logo, it's illustrations, it's animations, it's a typeface that they've created for themselves called Sharp Grotesque. And while there is a, there's been a slight UI UX change, they didn't even announce that change. They didn't announce the sleeker look yeah. on well, the actual Dropbox When did paper site. come? Dropbox paper. Paper when is also not new. So paper has been around for about half a year, yeah. I'd say but it's not widely adopted. And this is actually one of my questions because the way Dropbox presents this brand redesign is that it is following a, um, a change in the way people use Dropbox. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like they've said, we've noticed that people use Dropbox differently. And so we need to do a redesign. But I am of the opinion that it's the other way around, that they've done this redesign in the hopes of, you know, predicting a future where people use Dropbox for more than just file syncing. For like collaboration and idea generation, et cetera. Like overall for me, I don't, I don't know if I can necessarily entrust file storage as a place of collaboration. 
Yeah, right. That, that for me is one thing that it can facilitate certain types of conversations. But then this is an ongoing challenge for everyone. It's there's so many services out there. Mm-hmm. You have messaging, you have file storage, you have brainstorming, you have project management, blah, blah, blah. You still have email. You still have email, email has not gone away. And you know, this is like an internal discussion we've always had is like we have currently three or four different services. Yeah. What role does each one play? If you have to message someone or yeah. speak to someone, which yeah. outlet do you go to? It's crazy how every app also has messaging now. Or some sort of commenting system. Yes. So that makes it also yes. a little bit cumbersome because I, I'm sure you've experienced this. You remember seeing feedback somewhere, but you don't remember where. Yes. And you're trying to exactly. go back and to And you have it. to search every service. Yeah. So Dropbox is, I, I can see what they're doing. You know, Dropbox sees file syncing as, you know, a limited pool. Like they're not going to be able to go very far in the future by just doing file syncing. So they need to do more things. They need to elbow into this space of collaborative working. But I can't say for sure yet if let's this not say move collaborative is working. working. But let's say that they're trying to appeal to creatives. Do you think that this has any resonance with that demographic? Like to put that in perspective, there's more than these three, but those three I'll mention: Google Drive, Box, Dropbox. Do you think I also indi- have written down Baidu Pan, iCloud, and WeTransfer? Sure, whatever those are, right? Do you think each of them individually have a claim as to who their target demographic is? Like, I think Dr- Dropbox, by by virtue of doing this, at least they're claiming and carving out one part of this space that requires, obviously, storage, but also is a little bit more creatively inclined. So I think that's what they're trying to do. Like, they're trying to differentiate themselves by adding branding and a strong visual identity. And I'm not even going to comment on what I think of the logo and the branding identity. Why is that? Why don't you want to talk about it? You just think it's not I don't think, the topic at hand. I don't think it's the topic at hand. That's not the thing that I'm really interested in. I'm more interested in, does this even matter? Like, does having a strong logo, branding, visual identity even matter for a file syncing I think it does. Team working. So I knew you, I, I knew, really, I knew you were going to come down really on this side of the argument. The thing is, okay, let's, let's look at it in this, in this capacity, right? I don't know if this it's is the right It's weird way. how we keep coming back to this conversation because I know where this goes. This is about <laughs> branding again. Like this is about branding and product. Why but, do we? But, but okay, if sorry, we're, we're going to look at this, this topic, right? Like if you look at all the different blogging platforms, let's say Tumblr, WordPress, Medium, do you see Dropbox identifying with any particular blogging platform just in terms of comparison? Because I think if you can, then that already is a benefit on their side. Between Medium, WordPress, Tumblr, et cetera, et cetera, do you see them as being separate entities with different demographics? And if you can, that is a validation that Dropbox can claim a slice of a particular demographic, being more creatively minded people. I feel like you want me to say medium. But I'm just saying as long as you can see it, because if you can see it, that means there's a demographic that exists that they could potentially target. I don't, I don't think so. Well, okay. So I'm on, there's an existing segment of Twitter that's design Twitter. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm part of design Twitter. Yeah. And in general, the response from Design Twitter is that the branding sucks. So they are not fans. I didn't really care for the branding either. 
But also a lot of commentary is just concern that the core app works. And there's a lot of commentary from these creatives, from these designers that I think are the drop, like the audience Dropbox imagines where they're saying, we just want this app to work really well for file syncing. And Which if you does. abandon file syncing, we will be very upset. Yeah. Like there's been comments like, I hope this doesn't mean you're going to like distract from product changes and product updates. Yeah. Cause so, that's what they want. Right. Cause that's what they want. And that's, that's my argument is that like, maybe I'm not saying that this is necessarily a bad move, but I actually think that the audience ultimately cares about the function, you know, I'm going to say this about the functionality of the tool and it working really well and upgrading in ways that are related to the functions yeah. as opposed to upgrading in terms of its logo no. and the but, colors. But would you uses. also say it's because Dropbox foundationally was not in a bad place? Like everything about the, yeah. the branding was fine. Yeah, I think it was fine. I don't think there was anything particularly wrong. I do have a little bit of contextual trade news for yeah. you. Before you jump Dropbox. to that, okay. I do have a question. Knowing that file storage is almost like a winner takes all type thing, because in general, I don't think that many people have multiple file storage services. I think people do. You think so? I myself have, let's see. How many do you pay for? I don't pay for any of them. Exactly. So maybe that's different. But like, if you're going to get someone I've just finagled my way to not paying for anything. If, I mean, I mean, they need people to pay to generate revenue. So like, right. how can you find a way to differentiate yourself? How can you find a way to make okay, yourself- Okay, but like more? that differentiation is not going to come from having animations and illustrations, no matter how good for they are. For existing people. But I think for new people, if you're picking and choosing, what's the shiny, what's the- sh Shiny file server. No, I understand. Yeah. I understand that the illustrations and colors and logo come into play when it comes to advertising. So like, let's say Dropbox takes out a billboard in San Francisco. Yeah. Then it has like this really sexy new look. And yeah, that's yeah. going to edge out Box or Google Drive. Yeah. But that's the thing is like, they, if they can command your attention and get you to open up your wallet, you all, all of a sudden become much more... Committed. Okay, but I think it's a long-term play. But in my I think opinion. that I think the visual identity in terms of tools and software like this is relevant for product awareness, like putting me onto something new that I didn't know about and being attractive to me initially before I adopt before I've adopted. But when I'm trialing a project or like like when I'm testing out a product in a real use case, like that's not important to me anymore. It's like how does this work? So I guess you could say like yes this rebrand helps to get someone's foot in the door, but it has to be followed up by having an excellent service. Like no one's complaining necessarily Dropbox doesn't work. There were complaints that like focus your attention on the product and not on the identity, but yeah. I'm just going to assume that they're doing that already. Yeah. I like that they haven't forgotten about. I, mean, I see it as maybe one step back, three steps forward in the long term. Can I tell you the... Yeah. Tell me the trade news. Trade news. Very new this week. As reported by the San Francisco Chronicle, Dropbox has signed the largest lease in San Francisco history and is going to have a new office building all to itself that's currently under construction in Mission Bay. It's expected to be about four times bigger than its current headquarters, which we don't know for a fact, but seems to indicate that they're planning to expand, like they're planning to hire. Otherwise, well, I don't know. What do you need the space for, right? 
They are valued at $10 billion. And these are rumors, but it could possibly have an IPO later this year. So I do see the rebrand also just in conjunction with that. Yeah. Like making yourself look good. I don't think I'm the audience for this rebranding or people like me. You would never leave Dropbox as a rebrand because your files are there. I'm not going to leave Dropbox for a rebranding. Because I'm already side, using it. That's what I'm saying. They need to they need to find a way to differentiate themselves because if they don't differentiate themselves, like they'll just anyone can just randomly pick and choose. Okay, so what I'm go. interested in, which I expect Dropbox will announce later on this year, is the things that they have planned for paper or mm-hmm. like the upgrades that they have planned for paper. So what paper is is similar to Google Documents, but more robust. I would say, and looks way better, actually. Yeah, paper's pretty good. Yeah, I tested it out. It's really easy. I haven't used it in a team setting yet, like where other people are giving comments and what that kind of response is like. Yeah. But I could be convinced to adopt that as part of my workflow. Yeah. But that's what I mean about like product change. It is a bit annoying to work out of the Google Office suite, like the Word documents the spreadsheets and then have to revert to another system, yeah. you know, box or yeah. Dropbox. We felt that same pain. Yeah. I think my biggest issue is like, how do I quickly share something with someone um, based on credentials? Like not everything we do is confidential and like just make it very easy for me to work with you on a document yeah. without login, without any of that stuff. Yeah. And we don't really have that for box. Not really. I, I know Alex uses paper sometimes. Yeah. But that's probably the only use case. For sharing documents, I always use Google Docs and also for spreadsheets. So what would work well for us actually is for Box to have those kinds of abilities. Because like we're not going to move to Dropbox, right? Like even after this entire discussion, we are so committed in terms of files. Like even if you don't think about your connection, just the hassle of like trying to migrate would is... It's actually not that hard because there is a service that I used prior that allowed us to migrate everything from Google Drive mm. to Box. Okay. And it just, it was not that So cheap. hypothetically, yeah. if Dropbox had file sharing that was as good as Google and the pricing was competitive, competitive enough for Box, you would reconsider a migration. Yeah. I mean, I haven't used this service, like it's what, 40, 50 bucks per month. And it basically what it does is it ensures like, let's say I have uh, I, iCloud. I don't know if it supports iCloud. Let's say you have Google Drive, you have Box, you have Dropbox. It could basically clone everything and just keep a reoccurring sync. So what I would do is like, I would probably, I'd probably subscribe for a month, run it and then just unsubscribe. There was one more thing that I wanted to talk about, which was about workflow. And one thing the Dropbox design microsite says is they identify these problems that exist in our modern way of working. Okay. And the problem that they suggest is that the way we work, you know, saps our energy. We're overwhelmed and distracted. There's so many inboxes and devices and tools. Okay. Do you Mm -hmm. agree with that problem? Totally. Do you think that software is the solution? I think if if things weren't so closed, 
like closed systems and we just could aggregate all services, I think it would go a long ways in terms of cleaning up the experience. You know, imagine you had one feed for all your services. I'm trying to think of it exists, but if you had Facebook, Twitter, chat, box notifications, Dropbox notifications, Todoist, everything consolidated into one place, would it make your life easier? See, I wonder about that, but I also think that Dropbox and other services that suggest my service is the solution to this problem is wrong in a kind of fundamental way because I think part of the solution is developing working habits as a person. Mm -hmm. And obviously it's like not in the interest of Dropbox or Todoist or whoever to say like, oh, maybe you just need to get your own stuff together and figure out how you work best because they want to be like, oh, your ser- this service, just adopting this service is going to solve your problems. But I think a large part of it is figuring out how you as a person work and then yeah. setting up your own structures and habits. I don't think people are like that. I don't think the average person is like that. that that's one thing that just like kind of rubs me the wrong way. And while I understand like Dropbox is not the only entity saying this, like I feel like people don't say enough that maybe what is necessary is not adopting a new service, but looking at yourself and doing a self-examination. I wish you guys could see Cherise willing her way with her hands with those last points. (sighs) Yeah. Let's cap it off for the week. Yep. Good place to end things. I had a really heavy dinner last night and I feel like super sluggish. I really thought you were about to tell me that you had to run to the bathroom. No. Okay. That's a good place to end things off for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon and our membership opportunities, you can visit us at macon.com. There you can listen to our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can also subscribe to us to your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, do us a big favor and give us a review. It helps a lot. Five stars, please. Sure. No. Okay. Whatever you whatever want. Whatever you feel is whatever you accurate want. and feedback is good, good or bad. Um, before I run into the outro, I forgot to mention this at the beginning and hopefully Ron is around listening to this, but Ron, one of our Macon members, recently launched a new on Instagram called Kanyeisms. So what he did is he took Kanye West's portrait and you know like the talking mouth mm-hmm. sort of animation thing? He superimposed that with audio quotes from Kanye. It's pretty funny. I'll send it, I'll put it in the show notes. It's pretty dope. I'm happy to plug something light and fun. Yeah, for sure. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. So high energy. <laughs> <laughs>